This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome back to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. My name's Sam, and I'm your host, and I'm delighted to be joined, as always, by Dr. Richard Always Blackaby. delighted to be with you, Sam. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Richard. You got your uh, bike riding uh, skills up to oh, par Oh, well, again? you know, just trying, trying to squeeze in those rides. A hundred miles. Oh, I know. It's. We'll see. We'll see. I can't you know, drive that far without stopping at a rest stop and having a lunch break. I know. I, I think I'll be able to stop and have a lunch break as well, so <laughs> probably a dinner break. It'll be, you know, it, it'll be an all-day affair, so... <laughs> We'll see. I'll keep you posted, though. So don't. Uh, and you re- just remember the number to nine one one. Yeah, you need it. So I, I will keep. I'll keep that on speed dial. So, <laughs> uh, well, we're d- uh, delighted to have our listeners uh, with us today, and uh, we do this every once in a while, and we look at a book. Yeah. Um, typically, it's a something specific to leadership, but uh, this, you know, it's not always the case, but. Uh, this time we have a slightly different uh, book that was recommended to you by your son, Mike. Yeah. And uh, we thought we'd take a look at it. It's got some some application uh, to leadership. And so yeah. why don't you tell us what that is, Richard? Well, you know, I, we've talked about this before. I, I think it's good just to be reading in a variety of genres. Yeah. Uh, you can always have the ones you like the best. I, of course, I love biographies and, uh, uh, and I love leadership books. But uh, there are some other areas of books um, I've been reading lately and uh, this is one and and uh, my son recommended it it's uh, he's he, I never quite know what to expect when he recommends a book it could be uh, off the wall some yeah abstract philosopher of some kind but um, but this is actually apparently making the rounds right now among pastors and church leaders quite a bit it's uh, called gentle and lowly and the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And it's written by Dane Ortland. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, I, I enjoyed this book. It's just over about 213 or so pages, uh, 224 pages. It's, um, and it's, uh, he, he clearly is from the uh, Puritan tradition. Uh, he's a Presbyterian pastor, has a PhD from uh, uh, Wheaton, I think. And, um, uh, just a, a I, I found it a good book. Uh, there's a few things I, I might strike me where I'd have to kind of step back and think a little bit about, but uh, but for the most part, he I think he does a good job of really driving home a couple of uh, key points, and uh, and he he does draw upon Puritans, and so there's a few uh, in particular, Goodwin and Owen and. Uh, that he uh, sibs and a couple of guys that he Jonathan Edwards of course uh, he draws on a couple of those guys quite heavily mm-hmm. I, I'd almost say perhaps uh, at a certain point uh, maybe a little too heavily just maybe some of the same guys Goodwin um, they have good things to say but uh, uh, it's clear that he takes about half a dozen Puritan thinkers and uh, really draws upon those guys in particular. Well, so maybe before we we jump into it, uh, what's the pitch to non-pastoral folks uh, for for reading this? Yeah, well... uh, Or is there one? uh, Yeah, there is, because essentially what he's going to be... He's not really writing to pastors. He's he's actually writing to uh, Christians to understand who Christ really is. Mm. If you relate to Christ... Um, he, he, he has a couple of good points. Uh, he starts off actually and just says, this book is written 
for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes. Which I'd say is probably all of us. <laughs> yeah, post-COVID, that covers a lot of people. <laughs> um, I think we all, we all tick those boxes. Yeah, and he says uh, that this book is not focusing so much on what Christ has done, but who he is. Mm. Um, and we, we tend in some cases to talk more about what does God do in your life? What does he do yeah. to save people? But but what God does is based on who he is. And so this one is going to focus uh, particularly uh, on who he is and, what, and particularly what his heart is like. So he says, uh, so with Christ, it is one thing to know the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement and a hundred other vital doctrines. It is another more searching matter to know his heart for you. Uh, and I like that. I, and, and he says something, the, the heart of his book is that he says, if you look at the Gospels, apparently there's 89 chapters in the Gospels if you, uh, between the four of them. And he says that there's only one place in all of those 89 chapters where Jesus actually describes what his heart is like. Which is kind of an interesting mm. thing because we think of Christ as a God, you know, Christ is He's love, he, and He talks yeah. about I am this, I am that. I, but um, but there's only one place where He actually says, "This is what my heart is like, how my heart acts," and uh, mm. and so interesting. And so it's kind of an interesting take on that, um, and uh, and He takes that from Matthew 11, you know, in those verses uh, 28 to to 30 where he says, you know, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, and so on. And then he, then in that, those three verses, then he proceeds to tell you what his heart is like. And basically, he says, my heart is gentle and lowly. Um, and he, and so he has a lot to unpack in that, to say, if Jesus's heart is gentle and lowly, then, um, and that's the, uh, uh, the only way he ever revealed what his heart was like. Uh, what does that tell you about this Jesus that you relate to? And, um, and part of why I felt like this would be a good one just to emphasize it, it's a, I would say it's a good read for any Christian to read. Uh, you need to know who this Jesus is, who dwells within you, mm-hmm. who you're relating to, who you're praying to, who walks with you during crises like COVID and other things. Yeah. Um, and so he, he says, um, he says a, a number of things, um, that are, that are just interesting. He says in, in, uh, the, the, the basically in this place in, in the one place in the Bible where the son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. And so now think about Puritans that you have to understand is that Puritans, now I, I like I like how they do this, but you have to. It's not what you're, and you and I are used to anymore, and that is they. Uh, the, the Puritans sometimes get a bad rap, you know, being just holier than thou and moralistic and so on. But Puritans were actually quite practical, and they what they would do is they would look at one verse in the Bible and then just chew on it right down to the bone and uh, they would chew on it they'd look at it from every different angle they'd look at all the application to their life that they could have and so they might write uh an entire book on one verse um and uh and so there's a and you'd think wow i mean how much can you get out of just one verse but 
But I love that exercise of just yeah. really chewing on a, a deep verse. And sometimes you could go to some speculation and so on. But, uh, uh, but, it, but uh, in this case, then, to, to just chew on the fact that the heart of Christ is gentle and lowly, and he's the one that wants to relate to you. There's a lot there to, to ponder. And For so, sure. uh, you know, uh, let me, I, I can just um, uh, mention just, I'll give you some quotes from him. And uh, and then a couple of things he mentions either really made me have to ponder and think, um, uh, which, you know, I think is just good sometimes, especially when you're having to think about God, perhaps from a different angle than you, you have in the past. Yeah. Uh, he says, uh, for instance, what he is, he does. And so, for instance, if, if God is love, then what does he do? He loves. I, and whatever God is, um, that's what he's going to do. And so that's why it's important to know who he is. Mm. Uh, and I would, I would contend that there's a lot of Christians t- today, they may have been a Christian a long time, but they don't really know God very well. Yeah. And so, so they keep being surprised by what God does. And I would say, well, if you really knew who he, who he was, then you wouldn't be surprised by what he does. But if you are confused about who he is, then you're going to keep expecting him to do one thing and he's going to keep doing yeah. another. Um, and so he mentions a number of things. He mentions, for instance, that twice in the Bible, Jesus is recorded as having wept um, and both time, both of those times, it wasn't for himself. It was for others. Um, you don't see him weeping about the fact that he's had to leave heaven and angels and first class accommodations to come to earth. Yeah. Uh, what he weeps over are, is the suffering of others. And uh, so uh, he he taught he has a number of things that uh, I think are um, uh, just interesting. Uh, uh, so for instance, he says his actions on earth in a body reflected his heart. The same heart now acts in the same ways toward us for we are now his body. So basically when Jesus came to earth, he showed us what the heart of God was really like. And now Jesus of course has ascended back to heaven, but we are the body of Christ now. And so we need to act in a way that reflects the heart of God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, of course, as you can see a lot of Christians behaving in ways today that you would say, well, that's not necessarily the heart of God. And, and, and he's going to really unpack the tension here between the fact that God is a God of justice, a God of wrath even, um, but the only place, again, where Jesus really describes his heart is to say it's gentle and lowly. And yeah. in fact, he has a, a great quote where he just says, God will actually be far more gentle with you than you will even be with yourself. You, you don't even know how to be as gentle with yourself as God knows how to be because that's his heart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it's lowly, which means he doesn't uh, just condemn you and judge you and uh, constantly criticize you for falling short. His heart is lowly. It's gentle. Um, he, and, and he says a, a number of things I think that, um, uh, is, is really, uh, I think encouraging, like he says, but, uh, what if his very heart and joy is engaged in a new way in our foibles and failures? In other words, he says, 
we, there's, there's something within us that says, if I keep messing up over and over again, and I have to keep coming back to God for grace, isn't he going to get tired of that? Isn't he going to say, Sam, again, like after all this, after all I've done for you, and you're still, you know, losing your temper here, you're still losing, you know, not confident in, in, in faith about that. Uh, but the fact is that, and, and, and um, Orland does a good job just of unpacking how, uh, in many ways he finds joy in our coming to him. Uh, in fact, he gets more, his point is Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do. He says by our coming to him. And, um, and he, you know, he, he says like, if you're, of course, if you're a father and you see your child suffering, uh, it breaks your heart to see him unwilling to come to you for help. You know, you could fix this problem right away, but some children just stubbornly would rather just keep hitting their head against a wall than admit that, you know, your, their dad could fix the problem in 10 seconds if yeah. they, he just would come. And so when that child, um, comes finally to the father to say, I just can't fix this. Can you help me? Well, uh, because God's heart is perfectly, uh, gentle and lowly, he gets more joy out of your coming to him than you're going to get from him solving your problem. Mm. And so he, he kind of just says, um, that ought to really encourage you. Yeah, no that, kidding. And, and why delay? You know, why delay? Why say to God, well, I'm going to try for a week or two to fix this myself. If I just can't out. do it, God, I'll finally come to you. Yeah, but isn't that just like us to to want to just fix it on our own? And yeah. despite all the evidence that we can't. And yeah. <laughs> And and he said he has a, he he addresses some really interesting theological issues like, for instance, you know one of the de- debates sometimes is well you know, Jesus never sinned, so how can he really understand or sympathize like he he made it through all of life perfectly, so how can he um, you know he he must get impatient with us and say Sam you messed up again like I lived thirty three years never messed up once and here yeah. you are just this week you know you um, but it 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 he says Jesus's sinlessness means he knows temptation better than we ourselves do and I think that's an interesting insight he says it because he didn't sin doesn't mean he wasn't tempted in fact um, if you're perfect and have never sinned then those temptations uh, could even be more powerful just to do it once. Mm. You've never done this, you know, why not just do it once, see what it's like. Um, and, and sin can, can seem so ugly to you because you've never sinned. And so his whole point is he actually understands temptation more intensely than we do because we've given into it lots of times without even resisting, but he has resisted it to the full measure, you know, like, in, in some yeah. cases, Satan doesn't even have to pull out his major temptations for us because we've already succumbed to a minor one, you know, yeah. but, but when you don't yield to the minor temptations, um, then Satan fires all of his bullets at you to try to get you. And so Jesus got the full onslaught of temptation and yet still didn't sin. So, uh, and yet because his heart is gentle and lowly, he doesn't turn around and say, well, I did it. Why can't you? Um, instead he has a heart that's gentle. It's, it's kind. Um, he sympathizes with you because he, because he knows what it's like to be tempted. Um, and, uh, he, he, uh, it's, he just has some great quotes. He says, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow 
will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. Uh, mm. And so just a continual encouragement to say, um, don't beat yourself up when you fall short. Just understand he has a heart for you. He cares about you. Um, it says, what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. So he says, uh, if you want the, 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 the tenderness, the kindness of God, uh, it, it, you don't say, well, I've just sinned too much this time. This is so bad. Even God is going to be appalled at what I've done. But he says that's not how God measures it. He doesn't sort of have a one out of 10 scale for your sin and say anything under about a six, come on with me, but <laughs> over that and yeah. hey, you, you just deserve to suffer for messing up like that. Uh, the only condition it says based on Matthew 11 is whether you are willing to come to him. If you come to him, you're going to get full dose of his forgiveness and love and mercy. Um, and, and, and it's interesting. He, he says a couple of things as well that I've, I find interesting kind of theologically. One that I, I hadn't really thought a lot about, um, but he says that, uh, you know, the incarnation is when Jesus becomes human, when he, he's God, he's fully God, but then he becomes a person, a man. Uh, and he faces temptation and all the pressures that we face, uh, the weaknesses. Um, but then what he says is a lot of times what we, the way we sort of imagine it is after Easter and then after his ascension, when he goes back to heaven, it's like, okay, now he goes back and he's just all God again. Like he was God and man on earth, but now that he's back in heaven, he's just God. He's not, not human anymore. But uh, what, what uh, um, Ortland says is, no, what, once he became human, he's going to be human forever now. Like he's always mm. going to be human. Uh, of course, not in a physical body, but in the essence of his humanity. And so, because he's going to talk about his intercession and the fact that now what he does is uh, he, he's constantly interceding with the father for us. And so, but he, it's not like, yeah, I remember way back 2000 years ago when I was human and well, it was rough, but you know, glad I got through that. Okay. And unscathed. He says, no, he took his humanity with him back to heaven. Like not, he didn't take his physical body back, mm -hmm. but he took his humanity. And that's something you just have to kind of mull over a bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, and he also says uh, that there's a misconception that um, that God, we often see God the Father as this righteous, holy, wrathful God that condemns sin, and then his son, Jesus, as the loving Savior who says, Dad, I'll go down and die on a cross for them so they can, so your wrath can be uh, satisfied. And, uh, and, and Orland says, well... God does have wrath. God does demand that sin be atoned for. But he would go on to say, but he is just, but he and the son have like agreed on this plan from the beginning of time. Yeah. Uh, the father is just as eager for the cross uh, to, to pay the price for our sin as the son is. They, uh, the son implements the plan, but the father is wholeheartedly in agreement. And yeah. so... What he's trying to say is that when you look at God's heart in the Old Testament, 
um, you see the same heart that you find in Jesus. Jesus's heart just reflects the Father's heart. It's mm. it's not that the Father of the Old Testament is a judgmental, angry God, and Jesus is a loving, gentle Savior. Um, they have the very same heart, and and He does a good job looking in the Old Testament and just showing you uh, that the Father the Father's heart is. Uh, gentle and lowly in a sense, just like Jesus is. Uh, mm. He loves us just as much as Jesus does. Yeah, well, that's encouraging stuff. So let's take a quick break here and uh, we'll dive back in. God's people keep praying for God to transform Washington, Hollywood, or Wall Street, but revival always begins with God's people. If there ever was a time America needed spiritual reawakening, it's now. Currently, 70% of churches have plateaued or are in decline. More than two-thirds of young people who grew up attending church are leaving the faith before they graduate college. In The Solomon Promise, best-selling author Henry Blackaby shares the path to a renewal of faith in America and the restoration of holiness to God's people. Order now at blackabystore.org. Links will be in the show notes. Well, just a reminder to everyone um, that we'll leave links to this book in, in our show notes and... Uh, pick up a copy for yourself or uh, someone else that, that you think might could use it. And uh, this has been a really uh, great uh, dive into the book called Gentle and Lowly and uh, just a real encouragement uh, already. And so, Richard, why don't you just, in the yeah. last few minutes we have here, what other nuggets of uh, uh, truth and, and comfort uh, can we pull out of this book? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, a couple of places, um, for instance, in Exodus 34, there's that famous uh, place where Moses says, God, just show me your glory. And, uh, and so God passes by uh, and, he, and he pronounces his name, uh, the Lord, and so on in front of Moses. Um, but then it's interesting because if you, so, so there God is going to show Moses his glory and he pronounces his name, which is sort of it means his identity. And then if you notice what he says, he basically begins saying how gracious and compassionate he is and how he he shows his grace and mercy to the thousandth generation. Hmm. And so it's interesting because the glory of God basically reflects who he is, what makes him so awesome, so great. And so you would think that he'd pass by and say, creator of the universe, a judge of all humanity, yeah, yeah. holding time in his hands. But all the things he mentions are his mercy, his grace. And, and so uh, Ortland says that the glory of God in, the, in his, his, its essence is his love, his forgiveness, his grace. And, and it, even uh, he points out that when you know, he, he passes by and he mentions all these things, he's gracious and kind and he forgives to the thousandth generation. And then kind of almost as an afterthought, he gets to the very end and he says, and he, and he basically he punishes sinners to the third and fourth generation. So it, it sounds kind of harsh, but it's almost kind of like at the very end, he has one negative, like it's all positive. He's gracious, forgiving, kind. Um, and then it's, and, and then it just sort of adds at the end. But if you kind of reject all this, if you cling to your sin, uh, I will punish you. And so, and, and Orton says he kind of has to say that uh, otherwise he just sounds like a fluffy kind of just, Hey, just y'all, I just want to bless you all, yeah. all of you. But, and, and he, but he points out, he says, yeah. So when he's talking about his punishment, he says three to four generations, which sounds kind of harsh, 
but his grace goes for a thousand. Yeah. And so his grace goes far beyond, um, you know, what, what, what he uh, punishes. And, and, and so, and that is the heart of the grace of God, uh, or, or the, the character and the glory of God. So God's glory is that he forgives sinners, that he, that he blesses and is kind toward them. And he will punish you if he has to, but that's not his heart. And he says another thing that's interesting in Lamentations chapter three, verse 33, he says that's the very center of that book. Uh, chapter, th- it's interesting. It's a poetic book. Um, there's five chapters in Lamentations. You may not have read Lamentations. Sam, well, you, you probably regularly pull I, I Lamentations I, up. It's to... on a uh, biannual basis. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to just... Or bicentennial basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he says, for instance, that the first two chapters of Lamentations have 22 verses. And of course, there's 22 uh, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so, and the last two chapters have 22 verses. But the middle um, chapter has, I think, 66 verses, which is just kind of three times the alphabet. And if you go right to the middle of that middle chapter, uh, he says that that verse kind of, it's all set up quite uh, carefully crafted so that if you get to the very middle of the book, what it says is, um, for he does not uh, afflict from his heart. Um, and of course the whole book is about lamentations and how God's judged Israel for sinning against him. But, but the very middle of Lamentations says he doesn't afflict from his heart. And that is a classic verse that, uh, Puritans would just be all over, you know? And, and so, um, what he, what, uh, Orland says is that, uh, God will judge you. God will punish you. Uh, if you, someone who just stubbornly, arrogantly says, no, I'm going to sin. I'm going to do things my way. I don't, I don't care what God says. Well, ultimately you're going to face the wrath of God on your life if you have that attitude. But what this verse is saying is that wrath is not God's natural default position. God is love. God naturally wants to love you. Uh, he will punish you if he has to, but he doesn't want to. And it's interesting. It says, um, he, he has sort of a little study where he says a number of times in Deuteronomy and a couple of those, um, old Testament books in particular, it will say over and over again, the prophets will say, you have provoked God to wrath. You, you provoke God to judgment. Uh, but, um, but interestingly, he says, you never see a place where it says you have provoked God to love. Yeah. And so his point is his wrath has to be provoked. You've got to really push God for his, for his wrath, but love just comes freely. Love just comes naturally. He, he describes it like a a damned up kind of, uh, natural feelings. It, it takes nothing for the love of God to flow, but wrath has to be provoked. You've got to just sort of thumb his nose over yeah, and over again before, before finally he just says, all right, then, then you're going to get the full measure of my mm. wrath. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And he also talks quite a bit about the humanity of Christ and, uh, and he talks about, uh, the anger 
of Christ. And, and, and basically what he says is, um, he, he, in his humanity, he feels, um, and he, because he's perfect, um, he feels perfectly. And so he, he can't watch his people suffer in sin and remain indifferent. And he can't watch you suffer uh, and remain indifferent. He, it, he actually gets angry. Um, but his anger is, uh, is holy. And so he says, uh, he is angrier than you could ever be about the wrong done to you. Uh, he says a morally perfect human such as Christ would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. And so it says anger is a holy anger just means that he is, uh, he, he's, uh, he feels strongly against anything that would harm you, would destroy you, uh, would rob you of his best. Um, and, uh, he, he just has a number of things I think that I, I just found interesting. You know, he, he's unpacking some of these perhaps obscure passages, uh, um, in some of the old Testament that you think of, um, you know, you might not read very often. Uh, even Isaiah 55 verses eight, and nine, he ta- has an interesting take on that because of course it says my ways are not your ways and so on. And, and that I, you know, I think you can take that to mean as, as we've talked about before that we just don't think the way God does. We don't, uh, view things the way he does. But, uh, but he points out that, uh, if you read the verses right before Isaiah 55, eight and nine, he's talking about his mercy. He's talking about his love and how he's going to restore his people and so on. And then he says, for my ways are not your ways. And so he says, um, that, um, basically what he's talking about there is not the fact that he's God and you're just a creature of dust who doesn't think like him, but he says in particular, um, we, we can't understand his heart in our minds. We keep assuming God would act the way we would. And anyone who messed up as often as we did, uh, we would think, um, well, then, then they deserve judgment or you've messed up so many times you'd have, it would just take incredible audacity to think you could go back to God again. And yet, uh, and yet he says, but, but Isaiah 55, eight, nine says, but you don't think the way God does. God thinks in terms of love. He thinks in terms of forgiveness and grace. So, um, and that, so that was kind of an interesting take. He, by the way, he does a, he mentions Ephesians four, or uh, sorry, Ephesians two, verse four, where it talks about God being rich, rich in mercy. Um, and again, it says it's the only thing the Bible ever says God is rich in is, mm. is mercy of all things. It doesn't say he's rich in wrath, rich in anger. He's rich in mercy. And he mentions that, uh, I think Goodwin, one of the Puritan writers did a, like a 10 volume or so, or maybe it's more than that, at least 10 volumes on the book of Ephesians. And he's, I think he spent a whole book just on this verse, <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, just saying, what does it mean for God to be rich in mercy? Um, and, and, uh, he just, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a beautiful way he does that. It, he has some, uh, some great, uh, quotes. He says, Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. He's mm-hmm. saying you were dead. Uh, and he says, uh, you can be, uh, 
we can be immoral dead people or we can be moral dead people. Either way, we're dead. Hmm. Uh, and it, it just says, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it, he says, for God to de-resurrect you, uh, to bring his rich mercy to an end, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You're that safe. And so I love that. He's What he's saying is you, what God's done in your life can't be undone. So if you ever feel like, uh, well, I've just messed up so bad, I can never make my way back to God, or maybe I've lost my salvation or whatever else, uh, uh, but he would he would say, you, you can't undo the work of God. You can't unsave yourself. Uh, you can't put Jesus back on the cross uh, in your life uh, once that's been done. He says the battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ. That is getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of the God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. Um, He also says the end time judgment that awaits all humans has for those in Christ already taken place. We who are in Christ no longer look to the future for judgment, but to the past at the cross, we see our punishment happening, all our sins being punished in Jesus. Um, so uh, just a, there are lots of uh, uh, great quotes. He says, we love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. Um, and just, uh, just uh, lots of great quotes. He says, one other thing that I thought was interesting, uh, you know, he, he says, when you're perfect, you see sin for all of its ugliness. And He says, for instance, a three-year-old child can't comprehend the pain a spouse feels at betrayal. So, uh, so in other words, he's saying, uh, you know, a three-year-old in a household might understand their parents are getting divorced, that dad, dad doesn't live in the house with us anymore. He, he sees some of that, but, but he's got no real comprehension how devastating Mm. it is. If, if his mother has suffered uh, because the father committed adultery um, and now the father's off with his mistress. Uh, the three-year-old can see his mother crying, can see that she's sad. He can't begin to understand the yeah. anguish that his mother's going through because he's too immature. He's, he's just a child. But he would say, um, but a, and it's kind of like that with when we look at our own sin. We're so immature that we shrug our shoulders and say, well, no one's perfect or we all mess up. But God, you know, Jesus who died on the cross for those sins, who suffered going to the very depths of hell uh, in our place in judgment, he sees sin perfect. He knows the full dimensions and the repercussions of that. And so that's why he takes it so, um, so seriously. And so there's just uh, uh, lots and lots of great quotes. Uh, he says he sends not grace in the abstract, but Christ himself. And uh, Christ's glory is preeminently seen and enjoyed in his love to sinners. So uh, rather than saying, God must be so tired of me coming back to him over and over again, uh, he, what he, instead he would say is that's how Christ receives glory by you as a sinner returning to him and saying, forgive me once again, I need your grace. So it's a, 
uh, Sam's an interesting book. It'll if you haven't read much of the Puritans, um, you um, is it, it is it a good entry into Puritan? Uh, I think so. You'll Puritan it'll thought. make you want to read some more. He has he yeah. has a great quote too about uh, from Jonathan Edwards, just talking about the beauty of Christ, uh, the beauty of God's love. Basically, Christ. Uh, he says, uh, Jonathan Edwards says, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And so yeah. when you see Christ, you see how lovely the beauty of God and his heart for you. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those books I would encourage you to get and then just kind of read. Don't don't try to just speed read through it. Just read it. You know, the chapters aren't very long. Just uh, read a chapter and then soak in it for a bit. Um, yeah. One or two phrases he says, like he says at one point, romance the uh, Christ. Uh, I, I, w- I wasn't quite sure if I would use that phrase, but I get what he's saying. It's like Christ's heart is full of love. And so experience that love. Uh, don't just believe it in your head, but uh, engage in the love of Christ. Uh, yeah. Relate to him. Get closer to him. Uh, there's there's so much more that God has for you than we typically experience and embrace, and so um, I you know I think with all that we've been through in the last while, it's just good to go back and say. And of course, Jesus now is and Christianity is so misrepresented in the press and by unbelievers, and so I think this is just a beautiful picture of who Jesus really is. Yeah. It, it doesn't, of course, Puritans never minimize the wrath of God, the the justice, the righteousness of God. But uh, but if you, you it, it's almost surprising how much the Puritans just savor the love of God mm. and the mercy of God, and uh, so not. I think it, it probably would be a, a great corrective. I think even for Christians, just yeah. to be reminded of that. Yeah. Well, as leaders, uh, it's it's great to learn about your craft and be a better leader. But what what better way? than to uh, to really know the heart of Christ uh, so that you can lead your organization um, like Christ would. Yeah, so. and it's one thing, you know, the, the what of leadership, but this sort of helps give you a why of leadership. Mm. Why do we do this? Why do we act this way and serve the cause of Christ? Because of who he is. Yeah. And why does he relate to us the way that he does? Because of who he is. Yeah, all right. Well, thank you so much, Richard, and until next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackme.org.